Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Well, good morning. Good to see each of you here this morning. For those who have uh, may have family or friends that may be looking to get online right now, our streaming is not working, so you have an exclusive look into the insides of West Hill. Um, it's not our issue, it's actually the company that we work with that may be having some problems, which gives me a good time to be able to say this, because then I know John isn't listening. I really need your help, okay? Next Sunday, we're celebrating Team Jam, all right? Team Jam is a ministry organization that started, I believe, in 1989 out of West Hill, right here. The ministry was born out of this church and has had a, a huge impact, uh, hundreds of thousands of athletes, uh, of, of people who, um, who have been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John Saucier has led that ministry team jam. Uh, John won't ever retire. Uh, he did retire from his full-time job. He uh, worked uh, as, um, he worked in the penitentiary working with men and uh, did that for his job, but really he was consumed uh, about telling people about Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, we want to honor John and his wife, Pam, and we, I have invited several of the men that he has impacted to come and to join us. Some of them will be sharing testimony of how God used John in the ministry of Team Jam, um, and then we want to do a dinner celebration, and so um, I love you. But let me share one criticism of West Hill. You guys do not sign up, okay? Um, so I love you, and I care deeply about you. I want you to come and have lunch with us. All the food is provided, right? It's all here. If you want to bring a dessert, you can bring a dessert. But other than that, it's all going to be provided for you. We want to have a really nice celebration dinner, just celebrating the ministry and giving glory to God. And so... We need your help by please signing up by either doing that out in the foyer, sending an email to uh, church at westhillbaptist.com, uh, letting us know um, if you'll be here next Sunday and join us uh, for lunch. Now, you know, next Sunday, I'm going to say, I'm going to stand up in front of everybody and I'm going to say, hey, we want you to join us even if you didn't sign up, right? That's not an excuse for you to say, oh, we, I just won't sign up. Please sign up so that it will help us. Cheryl is nodding her head yes. See, the kitchen ladies sometimes don't love me as much as what I feel they should. All right? That's not true. They do. They just get a little stressed, especially when it comes to feeding everyone. And so they want to do a good job. They want to do their best. And so we want you to please join us, okay, for that special celebration. So we want you to sign up. Please sign up today. Got it? Would love for you to join us. Now, Daniel 11. Would you turn in your Bibles with me there? This isn't to call anybody out, okay? I'm not... I don't want you to feel bad. I just am curious. How many of you read Daniel 11 this week? Anybody? Or maybe in the last couple weeks, if you read it in the last couple weeks. Okay, good, good. Excellent. Thank you. Um, for those of you who didn't, 
It's okay. It, Daniel 11 is really, really difficult. If you haven't read it, um, it's challenging. There's a lot in it, okay? And last week I told you we were going to divide it up. And so this morning, Daniel 11, we're going to look at the first 35 verses. And you say, well, pastor, that isn't very evenly distributed. No, it's not. Because the first 35 verses you're going to see really go together. All right. And then next week, we're going to look at verses 30, 36 through the end of that chapter through chapter 11. All right. And uh, just a few things before we dig in to Daniel 11, before we read it. One, uh, one professor called this the Red Bull of Bible prophecy. How many of you know what a Red Bull is? All right, it's, a, it's an energy drink, all right? It makes you really hyper and crazy. Um, I've never had one, and there's a reason for that. Uh, I don't need a Red Bull, all right? I, God has given me enough energy, and I think my heart would just explode maybe. Um, so I don't need that, but it's interesting when you think about that, when you come to this text, if this is the Red Bull of Bible prophecy out of the whole scripture, um, it is interesting. It's been said that there's 130 to 135 specific prophecies in this chapter. Just in this chapter. The details are absolutely enormous that we're going to walk through. One Bible commentary called it the preacher's nightmare. Now you feel a little bit more compassionate on you know, Luke was asking, hey, are you going to preach long today? So I asked him later, I said, did you say you were preaching on Daniel 11 today? He said, oh, no, I just wanted to know if you were going to preach an hour. Somebody else said, hey, don't forget the Browns play at one. It's okay. It's a... another, prof another professor said, studying Daniel 11 can be helpful in a classroom where days are available to unpack it. But I don't ever see where it would be helpful in a single message. It's just too immense. Okay. We don't have a whole lot of weeks. And we're not going to spend hours here today. But I do believe when we look at this. And we're not going to be able to look at every detail. But my prayer has been for you. That as you see the word, as you read the word, that it would st still up in something in you, like a, like a, a pond, that, that it would stir you up to where you have this desire to know more, to dig deeper into it. As has been our custom, let's read through this. Would you stand with me? We're going to read Daniel 11, and we'll just read through verse 35. You can follow along. Hopefully you have your text in front of you. Um, if not, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Daniel 11. As for me, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who will rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his prosperity, posterity, nor according to the authority which he ruled. 
for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be stronger, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble multitudes of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army in abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction on his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastland and shall be captured and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in with warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from, that, from the time that the alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with the small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. 
And the king of the south shall wage war with exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kintum shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take holy action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise amongst the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may not be refined, so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still waits, awaits the appointed time. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So if you're anything like me, you read through that and you're like, okay, that just, okay. It's like the book of Numbers, right? You read through the book of Numbers and you have uh, this tribe, the tribe of da-da-da, 120,000. The tribe of da-da-da. And you're like, okay, this is good. I'm glad that they knew how many people were each tribe. But what does that benefit for me? As we look at the text today, you know, while it is difficult to understand, I believe that we can understand it. I believe that we, there are parts of the scriptures that are hard and difficult to understand. Peter writes this about Paul's own writings, all right? In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's writing and he's trying to encourage people, um, hey, don't be, don't be led a, a, a astray. Don't, don't follow those who have twisted the truth of God, even though Paul is sometimes hard to understand. The word is sometimes difficult to understand, but let me encourage you to dig into it. That's where when you hear me say, I don't often say, read your Bibles. I tell you to study your Bible. It takes work. And in a day and age where we want to do the least amount of work for the most profit, we have done ourselves a great disservice. And sometimes we'll come to a passage like Daniel 11 and we'll just skim over it and think, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I think we lose something that is very precious and something that is my prayer today, that we will trust the text and that we will trust the God of the text. Dr. Mark Yarbrough says that. He says, trust the text, trust the God of the text. 
You know, Mark Twain wrote this, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. This is hard. And as Daniel is recording this, when he sees this, he is looking to the future. The beauty of as we look at this overall is we see this is a connection of the 70 weeks that we've seen previously. We know that Daniel understands it because of the context of what's going on in here in chapter 11. Remember back in chapter 10 in the beginning of it, um, the angel comes and, and Daniel says, I got the message. I heard about the vision and I understood it. And so as Daniel goes now to chapter 11 and 12, remember this is the context of chapter 10 where there's a spiritual war that's taking place in the heavenlies. And the angel was still able to come and has told Daniel what this vision looks like. And Daniel is writing this vision for us today. But Daniel was writing this to the Jewish nation. This is about the nation of Israel. And we're going to see different parts of it and why Daniel records certain things and why God gave him the vision of certain parts and not full other history. See, when we see this, when we read this, for Daniel, this was all future. Nothing here had yet taken place in Daniel 11. All right? Daniel 11 tells us where, where he is. 11.1, he says, as for me in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. Once again, Daniel is helping us to see this is real time. This is the place. This is the timing of all this that I was given and entrusted to this information, and now I'm going to tell you about what's to come. So for Daniel, all of this was to come for us today. As we read the text, we can look at verses 1 through 35, and for us, it's not the future. And in fact, when we read verses 1 verses 2 through 35, it's actually history for you and I. If you dig in and you start reading, and we're going to go through some of this, it's actually history for us. It's not about the future. It's already taken place. For Daniel, it was a vision. It was the future coming to him. There are some scholars who will read this and who think it still is yet to come. When I read it, these prophecies, as they were, it was prophetic. Written before 500 BC, some of these didn't take place until 100, 160, 170 BC. So, three, four hundred years before these events took place, Daniel's recording them. They're prophetic. For us, as we read them, we read them as history, but don't lose sight. This was a prophetic prophecy. That God gave to Daniel so that as Israel read it and understood it, they could see the hand of God continuing to work in their nation to protect them and to provide for them, even as there was utter chaos going around them. And he showed them by giving them a confidence and saying, listen, I want you to know, number one, that he is God and he is sovereign. If there's anything that theme that runs throughout the text of Daniel, it is the sovereignty of God. The fact that the kings do as God tells them to do. They're not going to act on their own. Which begs the question today as we live. Do we view and see people just acting on their own? Nations on their own? 
Or do we see that there is a sovereign God who is in control of all things and that he has a specific purpose and a plan? And his desire is that all would come to know him. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in what the text is going to tell us? That's a question you have to ask. So, are you ready? It's 11 o'clock. I'm going to do my best. My goal is 1130 today, okay? I'm going to do it. Logan's giving me an applause. That means we got to dig in. And that means you might miss a little, and I might go really fast. I will give this disclaimer. I'm going to say a lot of names, and they are going to be mispronounced. You can laugh. You can say it out loud the right way. I probably won't hear you. I hope you understand. I'm not here to give you just a history lesson today. But I want you to know these are real people, even if I mess up their names, okay? These are real people, all right, from real places. And as we look back, their history for us, but for Daniel, as he's recording them, it's the future to come. So let's dig in. Verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Again, that's where we're at, right? That's where Daniel's starting. He's starting there with Darius. All right, he's serving him. His goal was to do what? To confirm and to strengthen the king. That's his purpose. He knew why God had him there. So as he's there, this vision is given to him about three kings. All right, these three kings arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. When we look at history, we see these kings in Persia. This is so intimidating. I hate this. My wife's laughing because she knows. So Cambyses, all right? Cambyses was one of these kings. Ganatia is another king. Darius Alistataps served from 521 to 485. And then Xerxes, that's my favorite, because I can say it. Xerxes is this fourth king. When we're looking, there is a fourth one, right? In verse 2, a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So what does Xerxes do? Remember who Xerxes is. We know Xerxes by the book of Esther. All right? Esther is married to Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Did I say that right? Close. You know what I'm talking about. This dude was really weird. If you read history and you do your study about who Xerxes I was, he's just a weird dude. He's kind of far out there, all right? And what he does, he is stirring up and he brings in, in 480 A.D., History records for us that he brings 40 different nations together to try and to defeat a a Greece impact. He goes and tries to stir up 40 different nations and brings them along to try to go defeat Greece. But he's defeated at the Battle of Salamis in 480 AD. Now, I tell you that because we're reading the text and we say, wow, this is pretty cool. We're getting a history lesson, which it is a history lesson. But don't forget, 
as the nation of Israel is reading this, and some of it, it has happened or is going to happen, uh, is happening right before them. There's other parts that yet, as they read this, hasn't happened yet. For us, we look back and verses 2 through 35, they've already happened. They've already taken place, which is really, really cool. And the detail that the scriptures give us here help us not to just assume that this is just some crazy, like, oh, that, that's pretty cool. It must have just worked out that way. No, it's not a mistake here. The scriptures are true. So as we continue, we see verse 3. Then a, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with greater dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. Who's this? Well, we know this is Alexander the Great. We've already seen Alexander the Great. He's the little horn in chapter 8. And as we see this in Daniel 8, 8, uh, we see as he comes and Greece then overtakes the Persians, we see Alexander the Great, he does some amazing things in, in such a, a fluid way. That's why he's called the leopard with the wings, and he comes, and we've talked about this, but he comes in swiftly. And as we see, that as soon as he has arisen, verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. What happens to Alexander the Great? He dies very young. In 323 BC, he dies very young. His wife is pregnant when he dies. When his son is born, they are both killed. And so he doesn't give his kingdom to his son. And instead, there's four generals that arise who are given power over his kingdom. Isn't that pretty cool? Look what the text says there. His kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. There's four, there's four different areas and four different ways. When you're reading this text, remember who the text is for. It's for Israel. And so when you're looking at the four winds, it's based out of Israel or the Holy Land, the glorious land or Palestine. So out of that land, you're going to have north and south west and east, but you have to have a starting point for that, right? Because if I'm over here in Alaska, that's going to be different than if I'm sitting in Ohio. What's west for me will be east for them. And so as we look at this, the text is about Israel. It's about God's chosen people. And we'll see that as we walk throughout this. These four winds of heaven, these four commanders, Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, um, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Ptolemy and Seleucus are the ones we're going to look at the most because they're going to highlight them, okay? If I didn't say that right, just go with me, okay? But these are the four generals that will take over. Some will say, well, why are they only going to talk about the, the two? Because there's four. It's because they had the greatest impact on Israel as we will see it. Okay, and so if you look at a map, and again, I, I refrain from showing you the map because I want you to dig. It's not about a map. It's not about making sure that you know where these different generals were. It's the fact that the text is real and that we can understand the text and the text enough tells us enough. But as we look at the map, as we see it, these two generals become the focal point of Daniel's vision. So verse four, as soon as he arisen, 
Alexander the Great, his kingdom will be broken, divided towards the four wind, but not to his posterity, meaning he didn't have family to take it over. I told you his son was, was, uh, was killed as a baby, him and his wife. Nor according to the authority which, which he ruled. Alexander the Great didn't get his wish of how the, how the, the Grecian armies uh, were dispensed. The four generals did that. It says, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. It says then in verse 5, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be uh, a great authority. So what we see from these generals, and this is where now it just becomes um, crazy in my book. Okay, the first four verse or first um, yeah, four verses are pretty easy. And then you go from 5 to 35, and it's like, how do you follow along? It's really, really, really cool. Vince, you're smiling. Because Vince and I had a discussion, uh, I don't know, it was like three weeks ago. And Vince said he was reading this text, and he, he's like, I didn't understand a thing. And he's like, but then I went back, and I started studying it, and I realized, like, everything to the detail, like, it was happened. It has happened. And so Vince did the study. That's why he's smiling. And so, again, I'm not going to get all these names right, but I want you to do some digging. What we see here is that there is Seleucus, and he leads in 251 Antiochus. All right, Antiochus I, and he dies in 262, which will lead to then Antiochus, if you have one, then leads to Antiochus II. Very good. Thank you. All right, and then you have uh, one of the other generals here, all right, um, Ptolemy the first. he was leading until 285, and in 285, he leaves, he's the south, and he leaves it to his son, Ptolemy the second, all right? So you have Ptolemy the first. he's one of the generals, he's leading to his son, Ptolemy the second who um, Ptolemy II, if you do some history, he actually encourages the, the writing of the Septuagint, all right, of the Greek Old Testament, which is really, really cool. And so he's the general leading from the south, leading, and, and his nickname, Philadelphus, you ever heard that word before? Brotherly love, right? And where that comes from, all right? But we see Seleucus from the north and Ptolemy in the south, all right? And then they get these two children, what we're going to see, Antiochus II and Ptolemy II are going to come together. And even though they're bitter and they're, they're upset with each other, something's going to take place. Let's look at the text. It says in verse 5, the kings of the south shall be strong. One of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. So, Ptolemy II takes place. After some years, they will make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants and he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So what's this talking about? Well, it's really, really cool because we can read about this. This is one of the coolest parts because it shows it in such great detail. 
So Antiochus II, he's married, okay? He's leading. And uh, in 250 BC, 250 BC, before Christ, he makes an alignment with Ptolemy II. And the way that this takes place is Ptolemy gives his daughter, Bernice, to Antiochus II. Well, he's already married to a lady named Laodice, which we get Laodicea, that city that is founded after her. He's married to her. He divorces her. He marries Bernice, this other king, the king of the south's daughter. When he marries the king of the daughter's south, and they get moving, all right, they are poisoned by his ex-wife. You're like, this is like a soap opera. Yes, it is. But it's history. It's really, really cool. Like, this is what the text is telling us. After some years, they make an alliance, verse 6. That alliance was made between these two generals, between these two kings now. And part of that ag agreement was centered around the king of the south's daughter. And so he gave his daughter to the king of the north, Antiochus II, to be married. And when he did that, the text tells us, and she shall not re retain the strength of her arm. Meaning, she is not going to live. And in fact, she dies. And not only does she die, Bernice, but that same year, her father dies. He dies in Egypt. Who's her father? Remember, he's the king of the south. He's out of Egypt. The north was usually generally symbolized as, as Syria, as the leader there. The south is generally led by Egypt, or that term you'll hear. And so Bernice is given to the north, to Antiochus. She is poisoned, right? Antiochus and her are both poisoned. So who takes the lead? Well, Laodice takes the lead then. So we follow the text. Verse 7, in a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. And so as we see this, out of this then now comes Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III on the south is Bernice's brother, and he takes over. He's so mad that Laodice um, killed his sister and the king of the north, Antiochus. He conquers the capital of the Seleucid city, which was Antioch. And so he then makes a treaty with Seleucia II in, four, in 246. Guys, this isn't just made up history. This is real. And so as you look through this, you see the, the text and what it tells us. And so as you start to compare it with history, you start seeing these fingers that just weave together. And it's like, wow, this is so cool. But remember, from our place where we're standing today, it's history. Where Daniel was and where the nation of Israel was, it was prophecy. It was what God was telling them what was going to come. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 7, I'll, I'll read it again. And from that branch, from her roots, one shall rise in a place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. 
He shall also carry off to Egypt their, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Remember that he made a treaty, even though he was really mad, Ptolemy Third, Bernice's uh, brother, went and attacked and took back one in great victory, brought back so many of the goods back down to the south to Egypt. And then he made this covenant. All right. He made a promise with them. The treaty that the text tells us, history tells us that this really took place. And so you know what we can do? We can believe the text. Do you believe the text? Do you believe the God of the text? So he carried all that off. Verse 9, the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Meaning, Ptolemy is going to break the treaty, but then he's going to try to take over, but it doesn't happen, and so he goes back to his land. Verse 10, his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So when we look at verse, verse 10... That's Ptolemy the fourth. He takes over, and now he's going to take and start this uh, this wage. And as he moves forward, we're going to see what else takes place here. Verse twelve: When the multitude is taken away, and his heart shall be exalted, he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise, raise a multitude, and gather the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Verse 14. In those times, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do his wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land. When you see that term, where is that? What are they talking about? Israel, right? Or the word Palestine. We know the Hebrew word for Palestine is that. Glorious land. The beautiful land with destruction on his hand. And so... This leader is going to come against Israel. And we see that. There's a battle of Pannonium in 190 B.C. In 190 B.C., we see Ptolemy V. And as he comes, he's going to try to take over this glorious land, which we also saw in chapter 8, verse 9. And part of that, he's going to give his daughter... Um, to the other leader. So Ptolemy V is going to be married then to who we would call Cleopatra. This is not the same Cleopatra that we see later with Mark Anthony, okay, in Rome, but this is the first Cleopatra. All right, history tells us this. And so he's giving his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V, and she will side with her husband. Which is really interesting when you see Seleucius V and Ptolemy V and what takes place here in verses 15 and 16. So stand in verse 17 says, he shall set his face to come to the strength of the whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him his, the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or to be to his advantage. 
What he does is he gives Cleopatra to Ptolemy the fifth, hoping that she will be an inner working for him. But actually she turns on her dad and she sides with her husband. And so it is no avail. He loses the battle, the battle of Pannonium. Then we see as we continue. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastland and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall be put into put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Seleucius the fourth. He has succeeded. Um, he has succeeded his dad after being killed by an angry mob because his dad was taxing people. And the people got so upset that they killed him. But Seleucius IV was killed when he was poisoned by his own tax collector, Hanodius. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. You know what that means? He was poisoned. He didn't die out in battle. History tells us that Seleucius the, the fifth or the fourth was, was killed. His son, the fifth, was killed by one who poisoned him. Awesome, isn't it? Then we get to verse 21. 21 will bring to us and to our view somebody that we've already seen. But let's jump in. Verse 21, in his place shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. The person that we're going to talk about is somebody who didn't come from a royal line, but rose his way up. He was actually a nobody who rose his way up. And how did he do that? He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant. And from that, from the time that the alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come in into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what, what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. Who is this? This is Antioch. The fourth, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanetus. We've already seen him in Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 through 26. We see him, and as he's battling, we see him verse 25 through 27. There's a battle against Potomac, the, the sixth. In verse 28, Antiochus returns to his land in 169 BC. Remember, I read a section from 2 Maccabees about how horrendous he was uh, torturing the people of Israel and the nation that was there in the land we, we read about that in second Maccabees we read about how 80,000 Jews were killed and slaughtered in December of 167 BC he makes the abomination that makes desolate he makes and creates an idol offered to Zeus in the temple and then at that, then he offers swine, a pig, at the sacrifice that the Jews were offering their sacrifices. I say that because 
I don't have time to go through all the texts, nor am I smart enough. All right. I don't have enough history, history. I love history, but I can't recall it like you probably can. I want you to do your digging. All right. This text is real and we can believe in the text and we can believe in the God of the text. And so as we read through this, it's amazing because we get little hints and even the nation of Israel, as they're reading it, they're getting little hints because look at verse 29 and 30 with me at the, at the time appointed, he shall return. This is Antiochus. Epiphanes, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall not, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. What this is, there's a glimpse here. The ships of Kittim are the ships from a little island called Cyrus, and what we know from history is what's taking place at Cyrus during this time is what? There's a large Roman military base there. And so it's setting up for what's to come. Because what's the nation that is coming after the Greeks? The? The who? Thank you, the Romans. You can be confident. If you're wrong, you're wrong. It's okay, I'm wrong all the time. So what we see is we catch a little glimpse as um, Antiochus is going to battle and he wants to defeat the South. He's actually now fighting some of the Romans and in doing that, some of these ships and he gets so mad. And as he goes and returns home, he hears of the Jews and there's some of their uprising, the little stirring. And so he takes it out on the Jewish people. That's why you read accounts of what he's, what is he doing? He's, he's tearing apart their, their place of sacrifice. He's also taking the law and he's burning them. He's breaking the law. He doesn't want the Jewish people to reside. And you see that as he, verse uh, 30 says, he takes action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. He shall appear and profane the temple. I've talked about that, the fortress. Take away the regular burnt offering. And then he shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Folks, I do not believe this is the Antichrist here, all right? I believe this is Antiochus who did this. History tells us what he did. And yes, it is a picture of what the Antichrist will do as well. Remember, Antiochus is just a picture of who the Antichrist and the Antichrist, we're going to look in two weeks in the rest of this chapter of who the Antichrist is, and how much even greater he is of even Antiochus. Notice in verse 32, it says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. History records for us um, this time. In 164, there's the, what's called the Maccabean Revolt. All right? Mattathias and his five sons raise up an army, and in 164, they defeat enough, and they've pulled enough people in that they rededicate the temple in 164. This Maccabean re revolt is not something that we just wish that took place. No, the text tells us that there are people who knew their God, and they stood firm, and they took action. The Maccabeans are historical, they're real, and they tell us that the text 
is real and that we can trust the text and that we can trust the God of the text. Verse 33 says, And wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and the flame. Meaning there's suffering coming for the nation, for Daniel's people. By sword, by flame, by captivity, by plunder. Verse 34, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. Meaning the Maccabeans are there and they're helping and they got this little bit and they're pulling people from different parts of Israel, but they can't defeat what's going on around them. It says, verse 34, when they stumble, they receive a little help and many shall join them, join themselves to them with flattery. Meaning there's outsiders who are trying to be part of this. And the way they do that is just speaking a good talk. And some of the wise shall stumble. And that's what it leads to. Those who were wise, they're stumbling. They're falling away so that they may be refined. Why? I love this passage. This is an awesome text. And it helps us how see the love of God. It says, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it is still awaits the appointed time. Even in the midst of all this chaos, it was God's desire, desire to refine his people. The, the, the wording here is undoubtedly that God wanted to purify his nation. That's why judgment had come upon them. He wanted to make them pure. He wanted them to be set apart and distinct from all the other people. And he was going to do that until the time of the end. So when we look at this for our text, I got one minute. I told you I was going to do it, and here it is. Here's the point. It's very simple. Don't miss it. Very simple. Live a committed and confident life. The text is the text. The text is true. When you dig in and you study and you can see a lot more better than I ever communicated it to you. Because I'm not good at necessarily the historical aspect of this or to take the time. That's why the professor said it would be better in a classroom than a sermon. Here's the truth. The text is worthy to be trusted because it's God-breathed. This text of Daniel 11 is difficult, but it's real and it's true. And the God who gave it to us, we can trust. We need to commit our lives to him. We need to be confident that as we walk through our situations and scenarios, whatever will take place today and tomorrow and the next day, no matter what happens in 20, 30 50 years from now, we can still have the same confidence that when we commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing better than his blessing. He loves us. He has demonstrated that towards us when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and my sin. He took the penalty that we deserve so that we can have a forever relationship with him. And he's called us out just like he called Israel out to be distinct to be a set-apart nation. And he's called you and me, he's called the church, that we would be set out and distinct from the rest of the world. And the way that that takes place is when we commit our lives to him. When we say, I am confident that the God who created this text, 
that this text is real, and I believe that the God who gave it to me is real, and I will follow him to the ends of the earth. I went a minute over. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work and you will complete it. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. I love that. Put that verse somewhere this week. Psalm 37.5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Sometimes he wants us to get out of the way. So will you live a committed and confident life this week to him. Some of you are walking around. You don't know what to do. Some of you are scared. Some of you are filled with fear. You're filled with anxiety. We've never lived in a day and age. Where there's so much anxiety. I'm not about to say. That Jesus is the answer for everyone. In that sense. Our physical forms are complex. But there is a starting point for every one of us. Something that medication can't do. Something that another relationship can't do. And it starts with committing our lives to Jesus. It starts there. And then God shows us each step of the way how we can get healing. And how we can walk through each day. It starts with committing and being confident in this text and in the God who gave it to us. So we live our lives this week. I pray committed to the text, committed to the God of the text. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these dear people who have been so gracious Lord, there's so much here. So much in the text. And, and yet you've been so gracious enough to give us so many other primary resources that record the history. And they confirm for us that the Bible is real. Lord, your word is more than just letters on a page. You tell us that your word is God breathed. It comes straight from you. And I pray that you would build our confidence that we can see that, realize that, claim that, that that is, that is the truth. That we can trust your word and that we can trust you. We can be confident in committing our lives to you. Help us to take our hands off the wheel. Help us to stop trying to manipulate our lives, wanting it to be our way and failing to trust that you have a plan. Help us to trust In the Lord. Help us not to lean on our own understanding. Help us to acknowledge you in every area of our life. And as David wrote in the Psalms there. 
may we step back and see you work as we trust in you. May you do great and awesome things in us and through us, not for our glory. We benefit from your blessing, Lord, but we want your blessing because we want to display your glory. So we ask for your blessing as we leave from here this day. May you move in miraculous and wonderful ways as we trust you and we rely upon your word. We love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.